All right, well, I want to start this morning by telling you about this man. You may have heard of this man, but I doubt any of you know his name. Anyone? I'm just, I'm just giving you a chance. Like the, the one in the... Do you know his name? Not the guy who's looking for the treasure. Nope, that was a good guess, though. Here's his name. John Allen, I don't know how you say his last name, Chaw? Chow? Chow? Who's helped me? Chow. I'll try to remember that. I'll, I'll probably mess it up a little bit. This man grew up in a Christian home. As a child, he loved adventure. He loved hiking. He loved traveling. He loved living in the bush, living off the land. He once wrote, Why do I hike? To see but a brief glimpse of the glory of the Creator. As a young boy, he was um, captured by some missionary heroes. David Livingston, who's a pioneer missionary to Africa, was impacted by him. Was impacted by Jim Elliott, who gave his life in reaching the Wadrani Indians in Ecuador. And and John also grasped the missionary spirit as well. as a young man, he took several missionary trips to Mexico, South Africa, and Iraq. But of all the peoples in the world, just one group, one people group attracted his attention. It was the people of North Sentinel Island. Now, the, the Sentinel Islands, I'm not sure if you've ever heard of them before. Um, they're, they're a group of islands in the Bay of Bengal, southeast of India. And there you can see India, and there you can see the uh, Andaman Mountain Islands, which is a whole series of islands, and then North Sentinel Island is just but one of them. It's very small, four miles in diameter. It's this narrow white sand beach that encircles the island, and, and beyond that there's a little cliff, and then everything else is covered with forest. And from best estimates, there are 50 to 400 people on the island. So maybe 100 or so people on this island. And, uh, but John Chaw was, was intrigued by those who lived on the island. And you might ask, why? Why was he so intrigued by those who live on the island? Well, here's the thing. is The people on the island live in isolation from the world. And the Indian authorities recognize their desire to be left alone, and they have left them alone. In 1956, the Indian government made it illegal to come within three nautical miles of this island. Indeed, it's even dangerous to do so. In, in 1981, the MV Primrose, a cargo ship, ran aground on the island, and the crewmen witnessed the men on the beach carrying spears and arrows and building some boats to come out to them, and in distress, they called, and they were airlifted to safety. In um, 2004, there was an earthquake and a subsequent tsunami, and the Indian authorities wondered how the inhabitants of the island were, were faring, and so they took a helicopter to survey the island, and the natives shot arrows and threw spears and stones at the helicopter, saying, you're not welcome here. In January 2006, two Indian fishermen were fishing illegally too close to the island and killed by the Sentinelese people. And India has refused to prosecute the Sentinelese for killing anybody because it's illegal even to visit the island. Well, John Shaw was filled with missionary zeal and wanted to bring the gospel to these people who live on North Sentinel Island. And this was really his his lifelong goal. Once he heard about it, his mind was like fixed upon these people wanting to reach them. And uh, he trained to live in the bush. He visioned like living with these people. 
Uh, he, he went through some various missionary training facilities, training to reach tribal peoples with the gospel. On November 15, 2018, John was 26 years old, and he attempted first contract, contact with a tribe. He paid some fishermen $350 to bring him close to the island, and so early one morning, John made his first trip to the Centralese. He, he paddled towards the island on his kayak alone while the fishermen remained on the fishing boat waiting for him to return. And uh, he, he brought two large fish to these people, planned to give them some, some gifts, these fish. And when he came close to shore, he met two men with bows and arrows in hand who, who rushed upon him. And John hollered to both of them, My name is John. I love you. And Jesus loves you. Jesus Christ gave me authority to come to you. Here are some fish. And of course, they didn't understand his English. And when they approached within shooting distance, John retreated and paddled as fast as he could back to the boat. And then he recorded his encounter in the journal. In his journal, that's why we know about it. Well, after a bit of rest, he returned later that afternoon with some more fish and some gifts. He had some gifts like scissors and tweezers and safety pins. He even brought a new Speedo towel that he had just for these, these people. And this time, they were friendly enough for him to come to shore. And he gave them these fish and these gifts and began preaching to them, beginning with Genesis, despite the language barrier. But the Centralese took his kayak, and then a little boy came up and brought him and took an arrow and shot him. Now, John had his Bible he was preaching from, and it was, it was right there, and the arrow stuck right in his Bible, and when he, he pulled it out, he saw it was in Isaiah 65, where it stuck, just right in the middle of his, his Bible. He, he said that the arrow, flat was, the arrow was, was, was made of metal, and it was very sharp. Well, so John backed off after being shot at, waded in the water a little bit, and then swam a mile or so back to the fishing vessel. Here's what he wrote in his journal after that. He says, quote, Although now I have no kayak, I'm grateful that I still have the written word of God. The plan now is to rest and sleep on the boat, and in the morning to drop me off, and I will walk along the beach toward the same hut I've been giving gifts to. I'm scared and frustration and frustrated and uncertain. Lord, let your will be done. If you want me to get killed with an arrow, so be it. I think I could be more useful though, but you, O oh God, I give all the glory, whatever happens. I don't want to die. Watching the sunset, and it's beautiful, crying a bit, wondering if it'll be the last sunset I see before being in a place where the sun never sets. Lord, is this island Satan's last stronghold where none have heard or ever had a chance to hear your name? Lord, strengthen me as I need your strength and protection and guidance. Whoever comes after me to take my place, whether it's after tomorrow or another time, please give them a double anointing and bless them mightily. So the next morning, January 16th, 2018, was the last day that John was seen alive. He asked the fishermen to drop him off on the island and then return later in the day to pick him up. And when the fishermen returned, they saw the Centralese tribesmen dragging John's body across the beach and burying it in the sand when the fishermen subsequently returned to tell the authorities of John's death, they were subsequently arrested as what they did was highly illegal and they knew it was illegal. And the Indian authorities never attempted to retrieve John's body. Now, since his death, right, people have debated this man. Um, some have called him a martyr and a hero. And other ha others have called him a fool and delusional. The uh, voice of the martyrs have recognized him as a Christian martyr. 
celebrating even just this past year, June 29th, that's the day of the Christian martyr, they lifted up John Shaw as a martyr on the island. And in justifying this recognition, they, they acknowledged the tension. They said, Indian authorities called Chow's evangelistic efforts to the unreached Sentinelese tribe on North Sentinel Island a misplaced adventure in a highly restricted area. The voice of the martyrs representative said this, but a closer look reveals Chaw's Christ-like compassion, extensive training and preparation, and clear-headed conviction of his calling to the Sentinelese people. On the other hand, his father believed he was deceived and delusional. His father had confronted him even before he went about, you, son, you have this obsession about, about these Sentinelese people. Let it go. Let it go. Don't go there. He said it was extreme Christianity pushed on John that, that ended in a non-unexpected end. His father wrote this, In my observation, he was selectively collecting whatever preacher's doctrines were in favor of his self-directed, self-governed, self-appointed plan. One of his close friends, I think, gets it right. He says this, What he did here was not wise. I respected John and his passion, but this cannot be a role model to emulate but a lesson to learn from. And I think that, that's, that's what I've come, uh, come to believe about this man. I appreciate his zeal, his passion to live for Christ and even to die for Christ. But I think there was a better way for him. I, I don't think he was wise. Involve more people, more counsel. Involve the government to open up the land somehow. Rather than being a maverick and doing it all on his own. Would have been a wiser way. Now I tell you John Shaw's story because... There's a similar element to the story that we're going to see in our text this morning from Acts chapter 21. So if you haven't yet opened in your Bibles to Acts 21, you can do so. And we're going to see Paul, the Apostle Paul, similar to John Shaw, and that both of them, Paul and John, were willing to die for the gospel. But both of them had people in their lives telling them not to go into the danger. Acts 21, verse 1 through 14 is, is my text. And in the text, we're going to see Paul heading to Jerusalem, where he will face known imprisonment and afflictions, Acts 20, verse 23. In this text, we're going to see Paul's friends telling him not to go to Jerusalem. And we're going to see Paul saying just what John Chaw said, I'm ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So let's read our story. Acts chapter 21, 1 through 14. And when he had parted from them... And set sail, he came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there was a ship, for there was, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. And then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemais. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. And the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. 
And while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. And we heard this. We and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he had not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. The title of my message this morning is Willing to Die. It comes from verse 13 where, where Paul answered them and said, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And, and this is really the posture that all Christians should take in our lives. Because when Jesus spoke to his disciples about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow Jesus, he said this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The cross was an instrument of death. And Jesus essentially was saying, you want to come, follow me. You need to take that cross upon yourself and be willing to die, is what Jesus was saying. If you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to die. Now, this doesn't mean that every follower of Jesus has to go to the Sentinelese people with the gospel. Right? We're not going to get on an airplane and go over there and just one by one right, be ticked off by these people. That, that, that's not the idea at all. But it does say every follower of Jesus must be willing to die for his name. The world may see it as foolish. But as Jim Elliot said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's no fool who dies for the gospel. That's John Shaw's perspective. A few months before his death, he said this, I want my life to reflect obedience to Christ and live in obedience to Him. I think Jesus is worth it. He's worth everything. Isn't that what it means to have Jesus be our Lord, is to say that He is worth everything? He's the sovereign God to whom we bow. And even Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were willing to go into the fire, costing everything in their life. They said, God, He is worthy. I'm willing to die for Him. Or even Esther, when she went before the king, she knew that she could perish. And she said, if I perish perish. I'm willing to die. Well, this was Paul's perspective. In Acts chapter 20, in speaking to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, he said this in verse 24. He said, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. He, he saw his life as nothing, of no value. And that's what we ought to see our lives as no value at all. Like he, he loved us. that we, He died for us that we who live should no longer live for ourselves. It's not of value to ourselves. We should live for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And so my question to my text this morning is, are you, are you willing to die for Jesus? We see the text broke down in, in two sections. The first gives some travel details and then Paul's experience at Tyre. And the second gives some more travel experiences, and then Paul's experience at Caesarea. And so let's first look at Paul's experience in Tyre. We're going to get there. Verse 1 is going to travel to, to get us there by, I think, like verse 4, verse 3, we're going to get there. He says this in verse 1, Luke writes, And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a, a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. 
Now, by this time, I, I trust you know that Paul's on his third missionary journey being sent out from that great church in Antioch. Some years before his journey, right, he, he then traveled after that from uh, Antioch into southern Galatia. And from southern Galatia, he landed in Ephesus where he was there for three years. And then after leaving there, he went north to, to Troas and then on into Macedonia. And then eventually he made it all the way down to Corinth there in Greece and in Achaia. And it was there he wrote the, the book of the Romans. And then he returned by the same way he came. He went back through Macedonia. Was it Philippi for the, the Passover? And then he came back to Troas. Remember where, where Eutychus fell out of the window? And, and then he went to Miletus. We looked at that last couple of weeks where they called the Ephesian elders to them and said a parting word to them there. And then, verse 1 he takes us through Kos and Rhodes and Patera. Kos and Rhodes were islands off the shore. You remember Rhodes was the, the place where one of the seven wonders of the world stood. The Colossus of, Rome, of Rhodes, that big giant statue that was there. Patara, though, was a, a larger city than Rhodes. Had a, had a nice harbor where commercial ships would, would often dock. And, and apparently they didn't spend much time in each of these places. Uh, Paul had his eyes set on Jerusalem. He wanted to get there before Pentecost. And at Patara, they found a merchant ship that was heading east to Phoenicia. And so they, they set sail to arrive in Tyre, which is in Phoenicia. And the details are given in 2 and 3. Having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And Paul knew there was a ship, a church in Tyre. It had been established years before even Paul launched his first missionary journey. It was established as a result of the martyrdom of Stephen when the, when the believers in Jerusalem were scattered all throughout everywhere. You can read about Acts chapter 11 and verse 19 about how the church was, was established there. And Paul knew about this church. And as the ship was unloading a cargo, he sought out the disciples of the church. Verse 4, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed for seven days. You know, it sort of reminds me of the time when Avon's parents gifted Avon and I a cruise to Alaska. And um, we set out from San Francisco, and then we went up into the Alaskan region, making stops along the way in Juneau and Skagway and Ketchikan before ending up in, in Victoria, British Columbia. And I think it was in Skagway, Avon. I'm not exactly sure, was it? But we'll just say it was in Skagway anyway, right? We sought out the disciples, uh, we had known another pastor who was ministering on an island in Alaska, and we, we knew of some of the trials and difficulties, and we we're saying, maybe this guy knows this guy at, at Petersburg. Steve Leston was up there on Petersburg Island, and so we, I think, probably grabbed a phone book that, back then and looked, looked up churches and found this guy was a master's seminary graduate, went to seminary. We found his address, walked across the town, which is pretty easy, maybe a half mile or so, we, and, and we knocked on his door. And um, I forget, I kind of think it was a Monday, I think it was a day off, and he said hello, and we explained who we were, and uh, that we knew Steve Leston, and and we're believers, and we just wanted to come and encourage you. And um, so he invited us in, and we had some tea, and just uh, we we knew what life was like ministering on an island, it's lonely and difficult, we spent some time with him and returned to the ship. That's what Paul did. When, When Paul was in town, in Tyre, he sought out the disciples, but rather than visiting for the afternoon, he visited for seven days. 
And during that time, he certainly told his story of missionary adventures up to Macedonia and, and down to Corinth and, and back again. And he probably told of the, the fundraising effort to help the poor in Jerusalem and, and how he was heading off to Jerusalem. Right here in Tyre, he's just going to head south a little bit to Caesarea and then to Jerusalem. And, and during that time, those in Tyre were discerning even from the Spirit of God that, that he was going to Jerusalem where he might be killed. And they were counseling against him. Verse 4 says this. It says, and, the disciple, and, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So the message they were receiving from Tyre was really this. Don't go. Just like John Shaw. Don't go to the Centelese. Don't go to Jerusalem. And certainly those in Tyre were fearful for Paul's life. Like John Shaw had written in his journal, they certainly believed that Paul would be more useful alive than he was dead. And so they're urging him not to go. And the idea here, they were urging him just over and over. Don't go, Paul. Don't go. It's dangerous. You might be killed. Don't go. But back in chapter 19 and verse 21, we read of Paul's travel intentions. He said, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit, that is in the Holy Spirit, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. And after I have been there, he says, I must also see Rome. During his speech to the Ephesian elders, we read much the same thing. Acts 20, verse 22. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Not knowing what happened to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So, so Paul knew in the Spirit where it was that he needed to go. And he knew that imprisonment and afflictions were, were facing him. And these entire knew these same things as well. And it was through the Spirit they knew these things. And I think since the Spirit revealed to them imprisonment and afflictions awaited for him, I think their conclusion was this. Don't go. Don't go to Jerusalem. <clears throat> And the counsel, though, gets this, is the assumption that suffering is wrong and must be avoided. Yet Paul knew his life would be filled with suffering when he was converted on that road to Damascus. The first thing he was told about his newfound faith in Christ came from Ananias, who had a message from the Lord. The Lord told Ananias this, Go tell Paul, for he's a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Right there from the start, he's converted, he's still blinded, Ananias coming to him. He says, you know what, God is going to show you how much you're going to suffer for his name. Day one of conversion. And that's what it means to be a Christian, right? Let's not hide what it means to be a Christian, right? When you come to Christ, when you believe in Jesus, he's asking you his whole life, your whole life. Because you're calling him Lord, you're submitting everything you have. It's just to be laid on the table and just say, God, what I have, it's all yours. And here it is with Paul, he was... To suffer for the gospel of Christ. And he was willing to do so. Those entire were not so convinced in telling him not to go to Jerusalem. But Paul was undeterred because his plan, he knew the Holy Spirit said, you, you need to go, right? By the Spirit, Acts 19, verse 21, you need to go to Jerusalem. So when our days there ended, we departed, verse 5 says, and went on our journey. And they all with wives and children accompanied us and until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another, and then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. The scene is reminiscent of Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders at Miletus, right there on the beach, kneeling and praying and say goodbye. 
Now, I doubt that the, the tender love and affection, affection was quite like that of the Ephesian elders because here Paul had only been with them for seven days. And yet there was certainly some, and I love how verse 5 mentions the wives and the children were with them in the send-off. Of just whole families were, were together in his ministry. probably shows where, where Paul had uh, ministered to them. Fathers and wives and singles and children and just everybody's a family ministry that he was involved with. And though he had only known them for a week, they had an affection for him. It would compel the families to go out with him to the beach and even accompany him to the ship. Well, he went off to Jerusalem. And verse 7 then brings us to our, our next point. In Tyre, we see the message of Paul saying, don't go, don't go to Jerusalem. And in Caesarea, we're going to see the same thing. Don't go, don't go to Jerusalem. Look at verse 7. Here's some traveling instructions, right? Some travel. And when we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them one day. And on the next day, we parted and came to Caesarea. Then we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Again, right? we need to look at the map. We see Paul spending a day in Ptolemaeus until he landed there in Caesarea. Paul's final stop before he's going to Jerusalem. You can see Jerusalem right down there in the lower right hand corner. That's where he's headed. But in Caesarea, he stayed with the home of a, a one Philip the evangelist. Identified as one of the seven. That takes us back to Acts chapter 6. You remember when there was a complaint about how the widows of the church are being treated? Some of them are being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the apostles right, figured like we could fix this problem and we could labor to that, but it wasn't proper for them to give up the ministry of the word for food, for serving tables. Not because it was below them, just because they were going to preach the word that they could do, but others could do the serving of the tables. And so they appointed seven men whose quality character was, was exemplary, and Philip was one of those seven, which means that he was a respected servant of the church. And we also see in verse 8 that Philip was identified as being the evangelist. This takes us back to Acts chapter 8, which describes Philip preaching Christ in Samaria, north of Jerusalem. And as he was in Samaria, north of Jerusalem, many believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ. Right? When he went up north from Jerusalem to Samaria, right, scores of people were believing in Christ. And then Philip was also the one that shared the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch who was in the chariot south on the road to Gaza, south of Jerusalem. And the, the eunuch, if you remember, was reading from Isaiah 53, which prophesied of the sufferings of the Messiah. And the eunuch was confused. He didn't know about who's this talking about, himself or someone else. Who's, who's this Messiah he's talking about? So Philip, Acts 8.35, told him the good news about Jesus. How Jesus had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him. How he was despised and rejected of man. How he bore our sorrows and carried our griefs. How Jesus was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And how upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And how all of us like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And there's the gospel, right? That we've gone astray. We've turned our own way. But God has laid upon Christ our iniquity. And that changes everything. Because we're, we no longer stand before God as guilty. We stand before God as innocent. Not because of good that we are, but because of the goodness of Christ. And that's what you... It's the good news, right? When you believe, your sins are forgiven. You're made righteous. Do you believe? Do you believe in these things? Do you know forgiveness of sins? Because when you do, and when you realize that your eternity is secure, 
then you realize that our lives are just passing shadows. And you'll be willing to die for the cause of Christ. But, but see, it's only when you believe that that, that that then you're set free. Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right? We fear the Lord because he has mastery over our soul. But he's promised we come to him. We're weak, we come to him pleading grace and mercy through Jesus Christ. He extends it to us. And the eunuch believed in Christ and was baptized by Philip and went on his way south to Ethiopia. Philip, on the other hand, continued on his way west to Caesarea, preaching the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. And this is where we find Philip. We can only assume that this has been the center hub of his his ministry for the last decade or so with his wife and his family. And verse 9 describes his household. He had four unmarried daughters. Who prophesied is what it says. Now sadly, this is all we know about these daughters that prophesied. They had some special gift of the Holy Spirit that was given to them to prophesy. Acts 2 had promised and declared when the Spirit would come out, your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And so here's maybe a fulfillment of that. And I suspect they learned a thing or two from their evangelistic father who knew the Scriptures well. They had a similar heart for the lost and somehow were used of the Lord to prophesy But it's interesting here in the text, though, even when it came time to prophesy about Paul and his future, it wasn't these daughters who were prophesying. It was Agabus. We read about him in in verse 10. If you look there, it says, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hand of the Gentiles. Now, we've seen Agabus before. He was in Acts chapter 11 prophesying of a famine that would take place all over the world, which came true. And here we see him prophesying about Paul's future. Now, he took Paul's belt, which, yeah, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta do this, right? Which, like, here, Steve, give me your belt. <laughs> like, what? All right, I'll give you my belt, right? And he gave him the belt, and, and this is. This is not what the belt looked like. Back then, it was probably more like a, a long rope around there. But, you know, my, my pants, I think, they'll, they'll stand up okay. But Paul had like this tunic on, and it was like, it was probably like a flowing, like he's probably kind of holding himself like this. What are you doing with this belt? And he took the belt, and he wrapped it around his arms, he wrapped it around his legs, and said, this is what's going to happen to the man who owns this belt. What's going to happen to him at Jerusalem or to be exact, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Right? This sort of object lesson is, is similar to what the Old Testament prophets did. And if you think that taking a little belt off and tying, tying yourself is unusual, Isaiah speaks about how Isaiah chapter 20, God told Isaiah to walk around naked for three years, just showing how Egypt and Cush will be stripped naked. And Jeremiah purchased a loincloth and let it outside the city for, for many days. And when he retrieved it, it was ruined. It said, so will Jerusalem be ruined. And Ezekiel took a brick and wrote on it Jerusalem and pretended this whole siege and attack against this little brick to, to show what was happening to Jerusalem. Just like a little child might play with um, some little toys, Lego toys or whatever, and show this war. He was doing that with a brick. Object lessons. That's what he did, and that's what Agabus did. He's predicting how Paul would be bound in Jerusalem. He wrapped his own hands, he wrapped his own legs, says, this is what's happening by the Spirit, if you look there. It says, thus says the Holy Spirit, 
This is what's going to happen. Paul, you're going to be bound. And, and I'm thinking about Paul. He's like, I know. I know I'm going to be bound. Because he said back in, in Acts chapter 20, he says, um, I'm going to Jerusalem. Verse 23. The Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. That's what happened in Tyre. And that's what's happening here in Caesarea. And that's what's been happening all along the way. He had lots of people coming and saying, you're going to face imprisonment. You're going to have afflictions in Jerusalem. And Paul was ready for it. From the first day of his conversion, he was ready for suffering. He was willing to suffer, willing to die. Now, it was news to those in Caesarea. Verse 12 describes their response. When they heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, there were times when Paul listened to the counsels of others and ran from danger. Um, when Paul was first converted, he preached the gospel in Damascus, and the Jews, as he was confounding the Jews in the synagogue, they wanted to kill him in Damascus. And so they set watchmen at the gates day and night to see when he left the city so they could attack him and kill him. And his disciples took him by night and led him down by an opening in the wall, lowering him down through a basket. Paul's life was at stake. He escaped. That wasn't a problem for Paul. In Thessalonica, a mob was being formed against him. His life was in danger. So the brothers immediately, Acts 17, verse 10, immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. You're the cause of this uh, this, this mob, and, and they're out to get you. You who've turned the world upside down, they're out to get you. And so Paul left. And when Paul was in Ephesus, another mob was forming because of his teaching, and Paul wanted to go into the crowd to calm it down. His disciples constrained him from going. And further, the Asiarchs came, urged him not to venture into the crowd. And, and Paul listened to them, knowing that was dangerous for him. So Paul was willing to heed people's advice of not to go into danger. But this call to Jerusalem was bigger. And Paul was not going to listen to their counsel. Because the Holy Spirit had said, you need to go to Jerusalem. You need to testify to my name there. He was not going to listen to their counsel. It's interesting here, even, even the way the, the verse says, verse 12, when we heard this, okay, so this is another we section of the gospel of, of the book of Acts, so we means Luke and us traveling companions. When we heard this, we and the people, the people of Caesarea who knew Philip, who happened to be staying there, we all urged him not to go. And here it's the pull to avoid danger and suffering which is so strong in our lives. Strong in Paul's life. Strong in these people's lives. But Paul would have nothing of this pleading. Verse 13 is like, he's pleading, he says, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. So, I mean, that means, Paul, it just doesn't say, oh, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. It's like, they're sobbing and they're weeping. Don't go! You're going to die there! You're going to be in prison! You're going to be suffering! Don't go! Paul says, you're breaking my heart. And they said, Here's, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul had his heart set to go on Jerusalem. He resolved in his heart he's ready to die in Jerusalem. Doesn't that sound familiar? Who else was ready to die in Jerusalem? Help me. Jesus, Sunday school answer, Jesus' Sunday school question, Jesus is always the answer. Jesus. I'm surprised when I put John Chow's picture up there. Who's this? Oh, looks like someone, but maybe it's Jesus? <laughs> no. Paul's like Jesus. It says in Luke 9.51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. When it was the days where he was going to be lifted up, 
He said, that's where I'm going to die. I need to go to Jerusalem. And nothing could pull him away from that path. And Jesus knew that when he arrived there, he was going to die. He told his disciples, Matthew 16, 21, that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He knew that. He even knew the town. He knew the place. He knew who was going to beat him and mock him. He knew he was going to die upon the cross. He knew he was going to be raised from the dead. When Peter heard this, he had the same response that those in Caesarea had. They said, don't go. Jesus, don't go to Jerusalem. Matthew 16, 22, Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. So Peter then, Jesus then turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, you're setting your mind on things of safety and security and comfort. But the things of God is that I need to go there and I need to die for the sins of my people. So Paul and Caesarea, same thing. The Holy Spirit clearly laid out the plan. Paul's going to Jerusalem and be bound. But his friend said, by no means, Paul. Paul responded as Jesus did. You're breaking my heart. I am ready to not only be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And with these words, the people submitted to Paul's perspective. We read in verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. It reminds me of the scene in Gethsemane, right? Where Jesus, knowing of the suffering that was before him, knowing how upon the cross, not only physical suffering, but the spiritual abandonment from God that was going to come, the, the bearing of all of our sin upon his shoulders, the bearing of the sin of everyone who would believe. It was, it was too great to bear. And that's why he was sweating drops of blood. And yet he said, not what I will, O oh Lord, but what you will. These people here, let the will of the Lord be done. And this wasn't easy for Paul. He was willing. It wasn't easy for John Shaw the night before he was going to his death. I read this for you again, but I want to read it again. He says, I'm scared. Picture Jesus in the garden. I'm also frustrated and uncertain. Let your will be done, O oh Lord. If you want me to get killed with an arrow, so be it. I think I could be more useful alive, though. But to you, God, I give all the glory, whatever happens. I don't want to die. But then he prays for the one coming after him. May you give him a double portion. So he, he doesn't want to die. I don't think Paul wanted to die. It's not like he had a death threat. It's not like he was some suicide bomber going, yeah, I'm going to die, right? He, he just knew it was a possibility. He was willing and he was ready. That's where all of us need to be. We need to be willing and ready. Laid on our lives. Are you willing? Are you willing to die? How about this? Are you willing to suffer for Christ? Maybe it means your reputation. Maybe it means ridicule. So you open your mouth and tell others of Christ. First Corinthians says that when you speak of Jesus, died, rose again from the dead, the people of the world see that as foolish. So if you speak the gospel, people are going to identify you as a fool. That's what suffering is about. We don't protect our reputation. We can accept ridicule. And if you're a believer in Christ, you realize it's been granted to you to suffer. Philippians 1, 29, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ, not only for you to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake. 
See, God grants us faith to believe. That's the only way we believe. If God opens our eyes to, to believe and see the majesties of Jesus. But just as he gives us faith, he also gives us suffering to you. It has been granted that for the sake of Christ, you not only should believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. God has given us suffering. Intentional. The world might watch the suffering. You might see it and be changed by it. Because the world is not changed by people who are greatly blessed. Right? And driving around the Rolls Royces and look, you believe in Jesus, this is what you get. No, the world is changed when people are suffering. And, and through the trial, they say like Job did, the Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what stirs people. That's what changes people. That's what Christ did. He, he didn't conquer the world now. He died upon the cross for us. And in suffering in that way, he draws people to himself. He's given a suffering to some of us. He's given death. Are you willing to die? Are you willing to die for Jesus? And maybe you this morning, right? You're you're with with Paul, and like you're 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 weighing it out. Paul in Philippians one that I just quoted to you, you've been granted to believe in him also to suffer. He's wrestling with this. He said, "To live is Christ; to die is gain." And he's really wrestling. Like, what should I do? I mean, living is Jesus. It's wonderful, but dying, it's better. That's the only way you'll have a perspective to be willing to die, if you convince that it's better. And then he says, if I'm to live, this is Philippians 1.22, if I'm to live on in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. He says, I'm a hard press between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that's better. But to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your account. I'm ready to die. I would like to die, but I know if I'm here, it's better for you. And because Paul knew that was better for the people, he said, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. I'm going to continue because God has has given me. It's better for you, and I want to continue on. But he was ready. He was ready just to of his life be poured out. In fact, he even says at the end of 2 Timothy in, in chapter 4, he says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure is near. He says, but I have fought the fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith right into the end. And tradition has it he was beheaded there in Rome shortly after he wrote those words in 2 Timothy. So maybe he didn't die in Jerusalem. We're going to see him get to Rome where he did die. How about you? Are you ready to die? Are you willing to die? Are you like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Are you like Esther? Are you like Job? It says God gives, God takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm going to worship the Lord, whatever. Whatever comes my lot. And there's not many of us, I don't think, who are going to be called to be martyrs for the faith. But if so, are you ready? Are you willing? Let me pray that we would be willing here this morning. Father, there's a burden in my heart of just that we would be those who take up our cross. Those who take up the instrument of death, as Jesus says, to follow you. God, for if anyone would follow you, that's what we need to do. And I pray, O oh God, that you would help us be willing to die like the Apostle Paul. I pray that we would not be like those in Caesarea or those in Tyre who are trying to Persuade Paul away because thinking of a a life of ease is better. God, a life of sorrow and hardship is the life you call us to. And particularly you called Paul to that. 
as we look at his suffering in chapters 21 through 28 of, of Acts, may we remember always that Paul did this willingly. Even as Jesus laid down his life willingly, Paul likewise stepped into that situation, laid down his life willingly. Though, of course, Lord, he appealed to Caesar and, and fought the injustice for sure, but he was willing in his heart to die. If it would end bad, he was ready for that. And I pray for us as well that we would be willing to suffer, that we'd be willing to suffer ridicule, even as the whole theme of Acts has been, be my witnesses, may we be your witnesses out in proclaiming you in this world who's lost and dying in their sins. They need to hear of Jesus. May we speak to others about that. And God, may you be faithful and gracious to open the ears of some who hear our message. God, they be transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of his beloved son, because they, they turn, repent of their sin, and believe and trust in you. It's all on you. It's you the one who grants faith, and so we pray to you. Do that, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.